0: Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years. Uh, I'm a licensed nutritionist of about that same amount of time, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. I'm actually running solo today. Phil is off, um, I believe he's going to attempt his 800-pound squat at a meet today. Uh, Dr. Nelson is literally in the air at the time of recording. So a lot of our listeners know that he's often... Uh, gallivanting around the globe, going to all kinds of conferences and workshops, and um, he always checks in and records uh, unless he's literally in the air, which is sort of what happened. Um, So I'm running solo again, and we're going to just cover news today, um, in particular news on food, fitness, and pharmacology. There's just a lot that's come across my desk, so it's actually not a bad time to run solo and see what we have going on. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Let's kick off the news with a heads up from Karen. Thank you, Karen. Always a good source of uh, studies and info that's coming down the pike. This one is, let's see, new fasting study uh, as it regards to chronobiology. So the timing of uh, your metabolism each day and eating, etc., Her email is uh, essentially a clip from the news blurb itself. In a University of California, Irvine-led study, researchers found evidence that fasting affects circadian clocks in the liver and skeletal muscle, causing them to rewire their metabolism, which can ultimately lead to improved health and protection against aging-associated diseases. Uh, The study appeared in the journal Cell Reports. Let's see. Kinouchi et al k-i-n-o-u-c-h-i and colleagues that the actual journal article title is fasting imparts a switch to alternative day pathways in liver and muscle and again cell reports is the journal Uh, back to karen's clip here um, in the email that she sent quote We discovered fasting influences the circadian clock and cellular responses, which work work together to achieve fasting-specific temporal gene regulation, said lead author Paolo Sassoni-Corsi, is what it says here. Uh, A little different first author from the study link that I was looking at. Uh, Anyway, that's from UCI's School of Medicine. Um, so skeletal muscle for example appears to be twice as responsive to fasting as the liver so many listeners are probably familiar but the different kinds of intermittent fasting at least as far as a lot of lay people think about it are pretty popular it could be just extending the hours in a 24 hour clock that you're not eating like keeping the window narrow for example skipping breakfast and eating between 11am and 3pm something like that trying to get your calories in a narrow window sometimes it's one day eating, the next day not, then back to eating because we tend not to compensate completely for the prior day of fasting. So there's different ways uh, that you, you see essentially as you surf around the internet on how people address you know, the concept, I think, of fasting and whatnot. Um, if you go to Science Daily uh, from the link uh, that she sent, it just says how fasting can improve overall health. Uh, It mentions quite a few of the things that she sent, and it just says, let's see, the circadian clock operates within the body and its organs as intrinsic timekeeping machinery to preserve homeostasis in response to a changing environment. Um, Now, food, of course, is known to influence clocks in peripheral tissues. Uh, Dr. Nelson and I have seen this in different conferences, uh, the different genes that alter metabolism in a cell. Um, it's not just in your liver or just in one location in your body, but it tends to be throughout. What I find interesting about this one uh, is essentially that it looks like muscle may be quite sensitive. Anyway, it says, uh, quote, the reorganization of gene regulation by fasting could prime the genome to be in a more permissive state, uh, allowing it to anticipate upcoming food intake and therefore drive a new rhythmic cycle of gene expression. It says, in other words, fasting may be able to essentially reprogram a variety of cell responses. Um, And then it goes on to say, Sassoni Corsi first showed the circadian rhythm metabolism link uh, about 10 years ago and about how some of these circadian proteins sense energy in living cells. So interesting stuff here. About intermittent fasting, I'd be curious uh, listeners, somebody wants to send an email uh, you know have you tried it? Do you find it difficult? Um, are you sold on the concept? that sort of thing I mean I, I, you could certainly I was talking to some students recently, but you could certainly make an argument that from an evolutionary standpoint, we did not live in an environment of constant plenty. There would have been natural periods of fasting. Probably not uncommon, you know, for most of a day or more than a day at a time. So it's interesting how, you know, it's an attempt to maybe mimic that and put the body in sort of this on its toes, not constantly, you know, high glucose, high insulin environment. So thank you, Karen. That was cool. Our next batch, actually, of news blurbs comes from the Institute of Food Technologists, 10 food predictions for 2019, and I may have touched on a few predictions, maybe even from this list in the past, but I'm just going to kind of collectively talk about these a little bit today on today's news episode. The first one is meat distances itself from animals. Uh, This blurb is from Bob uh, Swentek, the editor-in-chief of this IFT journal. Um, Essentially, it says plant-based meats are growing in popularity. And that's something that Mike and I did discuss uh, in a recent episode. There's been a lot of attempts with vegetable proteins. You know, how do we make them um, higher quality, not just a complete protein like animal proteins, but for example, if you take pea protein and you add a little leucine, or if you take soy and you add a, a particular amino acid or two to make it more complete, could you get something that's a little bit more protein synthetic for muscle? anyway so plant-based proteins and quote-unquote meats are growing in popularity um he goes on to say this uh bob does traditional meat is not standing still genome editing of food animals may produce meat with improved uh feed to protein ratio because of course the farmers are all about getting more meat on the bones of an animal right uh, and that can even go to an extreme with lab-grown meat, where essentially there are no bones. You're just putting nutrient broths into large vats, and we've covered this in years past, and growing the meat. I mean, that presents a real ethical you know, twist, like if someone is a vegan for ethical reasons. Um, well, there's no animals being slaughtered now. They're growing masses of cells in a dish, and they're growing on scaffolds of collagen and whatnot to try to make it seem like it's got a more realistic mouthfeel, but you know, it's much less waste. It's, you're not killing an animal per se, that sort of thing. Anyway, Bob Swiatek essentially says that that may be the ultimate entry into the meat arena, that commercialization of lab-grown cultured meat, uh, which might hit the market this year, like it's here. It's very expensive. uh, And that's what we're kind of waiting is for the cost per pound uh, to come down. So, That was number one on their list, actually, the IFT predictions meet distances itself from animals. Uh, The next one, let's see, is from Kelly Hensel. She's a senior digital editor there. This was botanical beverages hit the mainstream. And I have mixed feelings about this one. It says botanical flavors have been increasing in popularity. Um, Different kind of craft, drinks of different kinds, and they're relying on a variety of additions of these botanicals. Coriander, licorice, citrus peel, um, golden lattes that are flavored with turmeric. I know sometimes in my own house we'll have golden milk, which is sort of a you know um, turmeric-flavored beverage. It says this winter, Starbucks actually deb- debuted a juniper latte. Apparently having hints of juniper, sage, evergreen, citrus, these different things. Uh, and she goes on to say, the, the use of botanical extracts and beverages is in line with today's high consumer expectations for quote-unquote health-enhancing and authentic products. Well, I would just, I would suggest to anybody who just starts consuming a lot of these botanicals, I mean, that's a whole world of almost pharmacology, and I think we need to be a little careful, at least read up on what some of these things do. For example, this blurb mentions licorice, and there's some... Interesting and slightly disturbing info that licorice could depress testosterone concentrations, for example. But it's always a mixed bag. And this a lot of this, like, ethnobotany pharmacology stuff, herbal stuff, it's really outside of the wheelhouse of even a nutritionist. I, I would used to tell food companies, you know, listen, I'm a nutritionist. If it's about proteins or carbohydrates or fats or vitamins, minerals, water, even non-essential nutrients like creatine, okay, you know, I'm trained in that. I'll even wade into certain um, phytochemicals, right? P-H-Y-T-O, plant chemicals or zoo chemicals. In fact, creatine is one. Um, But a lot of these herbs and whatnot, this is drifting into the range of the toxicologist or, you know, uh, pharmacist maybe, uh, even if they're the best choice for that. But it's not nutritional per se. I I, I would just suggest you go read up on some of these different extracts. If you're going to regularly consume something, that's got different herb extracts and whatnot in it go see what those do um they could have relaxing properties hormone altering properties they could change different uh, enzymatic activity things like that so but anyway they predict that is coming down the pike at least according to uh, kelly hensel the senior digital editor their botanical beverages in the mainstream um the next one i think we might do a whole episode on here on iron radio uh with dr nelson because he has written a few things on uh, different Internet sites, uh, articles about this. But Cannabis Cuisine, it says, look for cannabidiol, CBD-infused foods and beverages. They're going to be quite a buzz in 2019. (laughs) No pun intended. Uh, Offering claims of reduced anxiety, better sleep, and pain relief, CBD is already making its mark in health products. It says there's a variety of these kinds of products hitting the market, including beer, wine, coffee, chocolate, soups, snacks. This blurb says in states where recreational cannabis is legal, both CBD and THC-infused innovations will expand their presence. Uh, This is from Margaret Malachib. Uh, She's an associate editor, apparently, at this IFT publication. It's the first time, if you haven't heard me say it before, that I have real hope for an actual appetite stimulant. As these products become uh, available Uh, in the past, you find a lot of crappy supposed purported appetite stimulants uh, in on the shelves of different, you know, natural vitamin type stores. A lot of these things are just a collection of B vitamins and whatnot, and they're not actually going to make you hungry. So that's always a challenge for people in the know. If you're going to gain heroic mass and size, you have to be hungry and you have to eat. And so, this cannabis cuisine idea uh, that she's talking about. That is interesting to me. It could be a new tool when used carefully, uh, in my opinion, uh, when it comes to weight gain. This next one, again, on their list of predictions here, uh, is the ease to please. This is Elizabeth Sloan. She's a contributing editor. Basically says a lack of cooking skills... And even greater time constraints have raised the cries for more convenient meal solutions. Um, She talks about how these sort of pre-prepped and all ready to eat kinds of um, products jumped 5% last year, according to the International Food Information Council. Pre-prepared, pre-cooked and pre-cut offerings drove 50% of growth in the fresh food departments uh, per Information Resources Inc., she says. So, um, there's even this idea of, you know, rapid cooking instructions or a quote unquote easy to prepare claim that, uh, they predict will appeal to millennials and Gen Zers who want fresh products, but essentially things that are, you know, almost instant, very easy and fast to make. And I can certainly appreciate the schedule issues, but here's another question I can pose to listeners. What kind of kitchen skills do you have? I mean, are you actually skilled in the kitchen? Just like with fitness-related skills, you know, I work with clients that are very intimidated. They walk into a fitness center, and they see all these giant pieces of cardio and blinking, you know, consoles and this sort of stuff. And, you know, or then they even just a barbell or a power rack or some pieces of, you know, machinery, and they just get intimidated and, you and even leave, unfortunately. But I think the same thing can be true for the kitchen. What kind of kitchen skills do you have? Do you know basic units of measurements? You know how many tablespoons in a quarter cup, things like that. Um, what temperature do you typically bake or cook or fry things at? I mean, there's a lot of things as far as kitchen skills as well that I think we need to be cognizant of. So uh, send an email if you're if you feel like you could use an episode on you know basic. Uh, kitchen prep as far as keeping your diet tight or pre-prep tips, stuff like that. But that'll wrap up essentially the IFT uh, food trend predictions for 2019. Um, There's more on this list. Some of it's a little bit redundant. So uh, things to think about and maybe even send us an email and uh, either comment or a question uh, that, that might sort of spark for you. All right, so one more on food before we get to um, fitness and pharma today, since it's a little bit shorter episode and you don't want to hear me ramble for the full hour, but I thought I would share a few things on um, what's happening in my lab with the coffee research. Um, Essentially, we're looking at more and more gender issues. We just gave a campus talk uh, this past week, myself and a colleague, Dr. Scanlon, on um, Well, the title was, Do Women Get More from a Cup of Coffee Than Men? Uh, and as with most of what I do, this is in a pre-workout kind of environment. Okay, So that's worth noting because there's some anticipation of the workout and that sort of thing. In any case, when it comes to performance, like barbell-type performance, we first looked at strict bench pressing. And I think the short answer is, do women differ there uh, from coffee? Uh, no. Probably not, um, we looked very carefully if you're not careful and you look at absolute numbers, men might get more kilos you know on the bar, so to speak uh, than women, but when you make it you know relative to their body weight, if you adjust for body weight or you make it a percent gain, um, there are no differences there's a sort of a uniform increase in power output, for example uh, in men and women with with strict bench pressing uh, later. Another one of my students, who's now graduated uh, grad student now, and she's helping with the coffee project that we're doing uh, with listeners, and um, even helping with sort of intern-like duties with Iron Radio. Uh, but Kayla looked at some of these things in a reflexive bench pressing kind of setting, so more like a pre-stretch, you know, stretch, shorten, cycle, that sort of thing. Again, when you look across the board, not much difference between men and women uh everybody benefiting uh, and we could certainly also document a stretch reflex because of course, when you do a you know a rapid ballistic kind of lift with some pre pre stretch kind of thing preload or pre stretch um you get better force output, and we were actually seeing like twenty nine percent better force production and that kind of thing we've already um you know, presented and published that abstract and whatnot. But what we're interested in now, and this was completely by accident, which I think is one of the most fun discoveries, way to make a discovery, is is the cognition and alertness kinds of things. Um, there's almost no question that women are getting more out of this a big cup of coffee than men. Now, one of the first things you have to address is maybe a big cup of coffee, say a 16 or 20 ounce uh, cup of coffee, Women are just getting a higher dose of caffeine per kg of their body weight, right? Per pound of their body weight, if you will. Um, then let's say a big power lifter, some 300-pound power lifter, that coffee is just not as big for him, you know, as a 20-ounce coffee might be for, let's say, a 120-pound you know, female. Uh, so we adjusted for body weight. You could sort of mathematically take it out of the equation. And there are still strong trends that women are becoming more alert And so out of curiosity, we looked at other literature and sure enough, um, there's literature out there, and we've touched on this in past weeks, but that because women's livers are busy, some of the same or similar enzyme systems are breaking down estrogen or progesterone in women. They sort of have divided focus when it comes to breaking down the caffeine in the coffee that you just drank. So caffeine levels in the serum get higher and there are some data to suggest that. Um, we didn't measure caffeine levels in the serum uh, in the gender comparison, although we are just starting to successfully measure some caffeine levels in blood, concentrations in blood. But we looked at at epinephrine production. And although it's not statistically significant, I think the p-value is like 0.1 something for you statisticians, the effect size was large. So we didn't have many men versus women to compare, maybe half a dozen of each. But If you do it strictly as a percentage, women were getting like a 70 or 71% jump in uh, epinephrine uh, release uh, after uh, consuming the coffee and doing a very light ballistic kind of workout. Uh, Guys are getting about a 35% jump. Uh, So again, you have to be cautious. You have to make sure that you co-vary for body weight and like I said, adjust for these things. But so far, it looks like probably women are getting more alert and um a stronger more robust maybe uh epinephrine response so stay tuned as we chew on this we're probably going to present some of this at the international society of sports nutrition uh meeting you know, in las vegas in june we had dr antonio on this show not long ago and you know i'll be there with with some of my crew so it'll be fun to you know share that data uh, and I might even do a big podium talk we'll see if there's time and there's interest but about gender issues with pre-workouts, because I there really seems to be something there. There's a lot of individual genetic variation in how we break down co- caffeine and the different compounds in coffee. but there're also, at least from what we're seeing in our lab, there may be some gender things, especially when you make them very practical with a lot of external validity, right? How it really happens when you go out and you know your training partner's a guy and you're a girl and you both drink a grande Starbucks. You know, it cognitively, or at least like um, you know, psychometrically, with this alertness idea, um, the female's probably going to get a little bit more, at least according to what we're seeing lately. And like I said, there's some interesting stuff about liver enzymes and and divided attention, because of course women's livers, they're again they're focusing on those sex hormones that men just don't have in the same amounts. So uh, men's livers can really hone in on that caffeine you just drank and break it down more rapidly. At least, you know that's there's the suggestion. So, I thought I would share a little bit about what we're doing to wrap out the food section. Uh, When we come back from break, we're going to talk about uh, fitness and pharmacology news and how it might relate to lifters. All right, folks, I'm back. It's Lonnie. I'm running solo today uh, because Phil is competing and Mike is flying. Um, So I'm struggling through a little bit of a cold myself here, but we're going to get her done. Fitness is next on our news list of uh, food, fitness, and pharma. This one is not a new paper. I'm still trying to figure out how this came across my desk. I'm not sure if a listener sent it or uh, I stumbled across it. But it's in my list. So here we go. Effects of the amount of exercise on body weight, body composition, and measures of central obesity. This is from Slentz, S-L-E-N-T-Z, and colleagues, Archives of Internal Medicine. Essentially, they try to determine the effects of different amounts and intensities of exercise training. So the dose, right, of exercise. Uh, So they're sort of looking at intensity and volume here. And they did it in sedentary overweight men and women, middle aged so they had some uh, you know mild blood cholesterol issues, you know dyslipidemia, but they're not wildly diseased in any way. They put them on an eight month exercise intervention. Uh, the three groups were one a high amount of vigorous intensity exercise that approximated to about twenty miles per week of jogging. They're trying to put it, I think in a, in a way that you know lay people can understand. So high amount vigorous. They did a low amount of vigorous intensity exercise. So again, they're keeping the intensity up, but they're cutting back on the total volume uh, and they approximate 12 miles per week of jogging. Uh, and then the the other group was a low to moderate intensity exercise. Uh, For, again, uh, that lower dose of about 12 miles per week uh, worth of, in this case, walking, right? Because lower intensity. So we have high intensity, high volume. We have high intensity with uh, roughly half of the volume. And then we have low intensity with some low volume. They were actually counseled not to change their diet and their weight and all that kind of thing. They're trying to get at just what exercise uh, is doing to your body weight and your body comp. They had 182 people actually in the study and there was a statistically significant dose-response relationship between the amount of exercise and the amount of weight loss and fat mass loss. The high and intense, so higher volume, very intense uh, group, they lost uh, 2.9 kilograms of body weight and 4.8 of body fat. And I would imagine that discrepancy there with more fat loss than overall weight loss is because they might have added a little bit of lean tissue. Uh, It was more intense exercise uh, over this eight-month period. The low dose, right, the low volume of vigorous intensity, uh, they lost 0.6 kilograms of body weight and 2.5 kilos of fat mass. So, you know, we're ballparking here, but maybe half. Uh, as much it isn't that surprising because they put in about half the volume, but again, they kept the intensity up uh and then they go on and they say both low volume groups, uh even the low volume low intensity uh guys and gals uh had significantly greater improvements than controls um, they didn't differ from each other though, so that's interesting whether they did the uh basically twelve miles per week if you will, in this metaphor of running or 12 miles per week of walking, you know, less intense, similar results, um, apparently. It's a little bit more poor for the one group. but So they concluded that in non-dieting overweight adults, the control group actually gained a little bit of weight, um, but both both low volume amounts of exercise groups lost weight and fat. And of course, the high amount lost more uh, in a dose dependent manner, so interesting stuff about the amount of volume that's required. Fortress used to say volume kills, and in this case you know, vol- volume seems to be uh an essential you know requirement when it comes to total dose per week uh, and I can speak to that too i'm post competitive as far as the bodybuilding stuff goes, but um volume is something i've got to work back into because I kind of fit this age group here, this middle age kind of thing. Yeah, you, it's it's tough. I mean, you're not – none of us are going to be doing super high amounts of intensity and volume immediately You know, after taking some time off or, or whatnot. So um, they actually suggest at the end here that most individuals can accomplish this minimal effect at least by walking 30 minutes every day. So that's it's, – it's interesting to me, right, because it almost suggests intensity and volume, a little bit of, of both, of course, is, is the best, but – It sort of, to me, emphasizes it's not just about energy balance, right? Because when you add up the actual calories burned in like this low-intensity, low-volume group, it's not heroic. Um, But there are still adaptations. I think we really got to keep that in mind. That's one of the things that my gears are turning from reading this is it's the adaptations that are going on too. 30 minutes of walking every day, we've championed that before as a reasonable way to keep a little bit of fat off even if you're in a bulking phase kind of thing. And it's not always just the calorie balance. You know, like you might go for a walk and only burn 200 calories. God, that's, you know, you could eat a big bagel and surpass that. But there may be something that goes on even with the, you know, to us, barely even qualifies as exercise kinds of physical activity. Um, So that was the one uh, fitness study about dose. All right, hang in there. We have uh, two more bits. More medical, uh, if you will, and pharmacological. This first one I found a little weird. If you're interested in cell biology, uh, how cells work, this could be educational, and and it's fascinating what they're doing. Um, But this is written by Carmen Leach, uh, and I got it through labroots.com. An inhalable form of messenger RNA might be a new kind of therapeutic. So let me just give you the heads up. Essentially, and I know many of you know this, but... Under a certain stimulus, the nuclei in your cells will send a message out to the ribosome factory in the cell to manufacture a new protein, whatever that might be. Maybe it's an enzyme you need to make some reactions happen you know, better. Maybe it's a structural protein. You get the idea. Proteins are very much action molecules when it comes to how cells operate. So what they're going to do for us here as we read this is they're going to try to introduce messenger RNA, the message into the cell. So instead of giving you the end product, they're going to try to coax your cells, ribosome factories, to make the product, right? They're, they're just going to try to administer the message and get that into the cells. Uh, and they're doing that with lungs, with inhalants in this case. But I, I can see this having applications down the road, so bear with me. Messenger RNA is an important intermediary molecule that normally carries genetic information from the genome to the ribosome. Where it is translated into protein, and they have a cool little video here. Researchers are trying to use mRNA, messenger RNA, to stimulate cells to produce therapeutics. I says scientists at MIT have created a form of mRNA that can be inhaled, um, especially helpful, of course, with lung diseases because you're literally, you know, touching <laughs> the, the the tissue of interest by inhaling this. You're getting it down into your. Uh, Lungs. The researchers were able to successfully induce lung cells of mice to generate a specific protein which glowed. Now, that sounds dramatic, but the whole idea of the glow is that's just a marker so we know that the protein is being expressed. Uh, It says the body can easily break mRNA down, so to use it as a therapeutic, it must be protected. Anderson's lab, so that's uh, one of the authors of this. Uh, has already worked in this area to deliver mRNA to other parts of the body. Interesting. It says within 24 hours of inhalation, the lung cells in the mice treated with the protein um, actually had some of this protein being made. They actually saw some glowing. Um, That glow gradually decreased over time as the cells degraded the mRNA that was administered through the aerosol inhalant. Uh, it says repeated dosing steadily maintained the protein production. However, so very interesting stuff. I think if you if you're interested in you know performance enhancing meds and all that kind of thing, instead of taking the actual drug of choice, you're actually coaxing cells so long as you can reach them um, in various ways to incorporate this messenger RNA. Uh, sometimes it it needs to be protected because you sell bio people might be like, yeah, but Lowry, that's going to break down. Not all that's going to, that message is going to come to fruition in a new protein. That's true. And this lab is working on different ways to actually, uh, protect it with different, um, spheres and whatnot, which, you know, is sort of outside my wheelhouse. But, um, if you can protect it and it looks like they can, they're actually getting cells to make the, um, the therapeutic protein of interest, let's say. So we'll see where that goes. But it's almost like the concept of a pre-drug or a pro-hormone. You know, it's not the end hormone itself, but, um, you know, you get your body to do part of the work and actually manufacture the real deal. So pretty cool stuff on the pharmacology uh, side of things. And I know we have a little bit shorter episode here, but we're making it happen this week. This last one is also um, medical, this actually reminds me a bit of what we've talked about in the past with uh, stem cell therapies, but this is also Carmen Leach from. And again, I got this through Lab Roots. But in fact, let me make a note. I'm often ripping on um, "quote unquote" science journalists, but Carmen Leach is actually a research scientist. So when I read the stuff that comes from her, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can I can more or less understand that you know she's not going to screw this up. Um, anyway. This says developing tissue engineered discs to treat bad backs. Lots of heavy lifters have back issues. A lot of people who don't even, you know, expose themselves to 800-pound squats like Phil um, already, you know, by the time they're middle age or having back problems regardless. So it says as we age, the discs of padding that sit between our vertebrae begin to wear down, um, and obviously that causes pain and whatnot. Um, Typical surgeries now are spinal fusion. And she goes on to say that can lead to a loss of flexibility uh, in the spinal column and even, you know, break down nearby discs. In other words, like there's a domino effect, right? If they put a lot of hardware fusing vertebral bodies together in your back, um, that section doesn't flex or or extend very much. So the vertebrae on either end of that fusion have to hyper, hyper flex and extend. And, you know, that domino effect then can cause wear and tear and breakdown at other sites so she says a team of researchers is aiming to create an implant that can replace degenerated discs they began with a cylinder of polymer gel and added cells that could grow grow around it Uh, they implanted those discs and they actually show a video here maybe i'll link to it Um, and it says you could see that the research subjects uh, in this case uh, goats (laughs) tolerated their implants well and if you're like, oh come on, you know, Lowney, goats. Obviously, we're going to do this sort of stuff in animals before we just go right into people. Um, but if it works really well in other mammals like that, you know, that's pretty interesting stuff. Now, I still think it's even less invasive, of course, if if we can get to the point like we've talked about in the past. There's even already trials with this, but getting stem cells injected into a degenerated disc. If those take well, that might be an even, you know, less invasive, more you know, techie, um, way to get some kind of, um, intervertebral disc regeneration. But for now, yeah, developing tissue engineered discs. Um, it's one more way, you know, we're always talking about Phil's titanium hip. And we've even had some questions from listeners about which, which one it is because they have a loved one in a similar situation, that kind of thing. And, you know, Phil's is doing well. Um, but you got to remember, people are very different in their training status and not everybody's a 290 pound power lifter either. Um, but having said that, it is interesting to see that there, this tissue engineering stuff is, is likely to change, you know, things like that. I sure wouldn't mind some kind of, um, additional, you know, meniscal padding in my left knee. I'll tell you that right now, whether we do that with a stem cell injection or there's something that's tissue engineered like this, um, Fascinating stuff. And, you know, it may be the point where, I, honestly, I think joint degradation is one of the things that shuts down a lot of lifters. And I'm not somebody that's lifted ridiculously heavy weights like a power lifter throughout my life, but I can tell you if my joints weren't shutting me down, um, I probably would continue to train heavier, you know, than I do now. I just can't, you know, for various reasons. And I'm not going to bore people with all my medical excuses and problems, but, um, if my joints were hold up better, you know, I might get another 10 years. And so those of you who are young out there between stem cells and tissue engineering, you may get another decade, you know, to peak out with your lifting and imagine where your peak strength might go or muscle mass with that kind of thing. Okay. So we're going to call it there uh, this week. Thanks for your patience. And again, I know listening to one person isn't quite as exciting, but that gets you some news from a variety of sources, always with that, you know, lifter's twist on how it might apply uh to iron radio listeners so we'll catch up with everybody next week and we'll find out what happened in um in phil's meat and in dr nelson's um (laughs) wherever it was that he was learning something cool uh this past week so we'll see you next time